Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, we're back with Scott Janish, co-founder of Sapwood Cellars and the author of The New IPA. Last time, we talked the basics of hop chemistry. Now, in this part, we're talking all about survivables, why cold dry hopping works, and giving you Scott's keys to make a fruit-forward IPA before we delve into some of the Maltose Falcon's questions. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at brewerspublications.com. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. This is actually, I think, a good segue into what you've been talking about as survivability uh, from Yakima Chief and now what you've been summarizing out there. What do you mean by survivability? What's meant by that term? Surviving is just, you know, essentially that. What, what compounds are, we know are in the hops to start, and so there's a measured amount of these hops right away. We can then measure them, you know, after the, the beer goes, or the um, if you test like the, the Whirlpool wort, for example, you'll, you'll see that those hops were extracted or those compounds were extracted from those hops and they're in the Whirlpool. And then you can test again at the end of fermentation and still see that those compounds are in the beer. Um, and so these are, these are surviving the brewing process. They're surviving some of the heat. They're surviving knockout. They're surviving some of the, the what could be left behind in a trub. Um, they're su- surviving um, fermentation, you know, just the act of, fermentation itself is a, is a, you know, can scrub a lot of flavors. I mean, if you ever, let's say you dry hop during active fermentation, for example, you'll probably smell those hops coming out of the airlock. You know, those, those compounds are not being survived right there. You're, you're smelling them um, during fermentation. Yeah. So, rule of thumb should always be if it's reaching your nose, it's not going in the bottle. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, that's true. And so that's what, 
these survivable compounds are, are really just, all right, let's look at the ones that we know are making their way into beers and surviving the, the whole process. And they're also important because we know that they're having a, uh, a flavor and a aromatic impact on beer. And so it, they kind of break down into these, these main compounds and, and um, the ones they're looking at most are linalool, geraniol. These are monoterpene alcohols. Um, they're looking at uh, thiol, uh, specifically 3MH. Um, and then they're looking at uh, 2MIB, which is one of the, the hop drive esters. Just to yeah. go back, linalool smells like? Linalool is, uh, well, linalool is tricky because that can actually be uh, bioconverted uh, during fermentation. And so it actually can turn into more of a, a green our geranial, I'm sorry, can, it can turn into, is it like a rose type, uh, is the, how most people describe it. And I think linalool is generally described as like lilac, um, lilac, but um, these are, they, they're being bioconverted by normal sac strains during primary fermentation and sort of train, they're, they're going from one compound to another and that other compound is a different flavor. And so um, that's, it, it's all very kind of confusing when you, when you break it down, but um and, and it's, that's that's part of uh, what they're studying now is, you know, okay, so now even some of these high survivable compounds, they think, well, maybe they're actually just, if they're not high in the finished beer, maybe they're just being bioconverted into something they don't know about yet. And so there might be other areas to, to go after. But um, so it's, it's fun to take the science where it's at today and, and sort of experiment with it. We've got these compounds that people are focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we said, so, okay, so survivability. You had a blog post about it. I was like going, part of it I thought was good was, so how do we practically, again, I'm trying to pull this back to practical for homebrewers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Practically, what should a homebrewer be looking at in terms of survivability? And how do we use this idea to pack that hop flavor? And again, I mean, I know your focus is a lot of the the, the very sort of uh, uh, fruit forward yeah, you know, hazy, a hazy for juicy type thing, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, this seems this to me has implications everywhere, right? Because we all love hop flavor; otherwise, we wouldn't be homebrewers. How do how do we use this notion of survivability in a practical sense to really cram this, cram our beers full of as much of flavor as we can? Um, you may, maybe it's helpful to even just go back to kind of how a lot of this started. So, uh, like a year or two ago. Um, Mike and I were, were brewing with a hop called Idaho seven. Um, Idaho seven was one that we, we threw into a, a whirlpool almost just because we had it, you know, there was no real reason to, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I'm, I'm so obsessed with tasting our beers right before dry hopping. And so we normal fermentation happens. Um, we do what's called a soft crash afterwards. So we're dropping our beers like 58 degrees after primary fermentation is done after a couple of days of that, we can then get the yeast out of the tank. Um, and that's generally when we'll, we'll do our first dry hop. But right before we dry hop, that's where I always taste the beer and just like, all right, w- what did we get from the hot side here? What, if anything? Um, and for that particular Idaho 7 beer, I was just blown away at how hoppy it was. Um, it had saturated hop flavor. It had um, hop aromatics even. And this is pre-dry hopping. Um, so maybe it was a fluke, maybe it was just like, you know, a really good crop or a really good lot. Um, but then we used it again and again, and we just kept getting this intense hot side saturated flavor from it. And so I wasn't sure exactly why. And that's something, you know, this Yakima chief research looked at, and it turns out that Idaho seven is actually the one hop that has the most of these survivable compounds. 
Um, and so it has the highest percentage of the compounds that are just um, staying in the beer throughout, throughout the entire process. How can homers kind of use this research? I think you, you just, you start experimenting with some of these, the other hops varieties that they found um, high in these compounds and, and tasting them um, before you dry hop. I think that's, that's really the way to know if, if what you're doing is making a difference. Um, and a lot of these hops there aren't even that expensive. I mean, these are some of the you know cheaper ones you can you can throw in. But- I, th- I think the one that surprised me the most seeing there was I think number three on the list was Brewer's Gold. Yeah. Which, I, if you want to talk about a throwback hop, <laughs> holy hell, that is a throwback to a throwback. Yeah, and they, they're just not being used, you know. And so that's that's kind of what's fun about um, a lot of scientific research like this is it just gets you rethinking some things that you you know just thought weren't the case. Um, so other hops on here, Idaho seven, of course, is number one on there. Uh, Bravo is a, is a hop that I'm really into. Um, I think you can even sneak Bravo um, into some um, dry hops um, as well, but Brewer's Gold, um, Centennial, Citrus, uh, Citra, Columbus, Equinot, Mosaic was really high. Mosaic is also very high um, for some, um, some of the other files that weren't even tested on here. Um, and so it, it's fun just to, to play with some of those. Uh, you know, Millennium was another one that's on there that, that's on my list to uh, start playing with. Um, so it's just, you know, you, using the science to, to throw some different uh, hops into your, your beer and see if you can improve it. It is interesting to see, like, in that list that you, that you said, I mean, with the exception of Brewer's Gold, and all those hops that you mentioned are very popular IPA hops to, to start with. So it's almost like people backed into this accidentally in terms of getting those those characters in there. Yeah, and I, I you know I think a lot of times what the hops you use on the on the hot side for brewers is is always just been kind of a it doesn't really matter type approach, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to like bittering hops. It's just kind of well, you're going to lose most of those those compounds, and and you're just trying to get IBUs, but. I think that's where the, the science is kind of fun is it's like even your 60 minute bittering charge might have an impact on, on flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, certain, certain hops can contribute more of the, the kettle aroma, the woody character from a, a 60 minute addition than, you know, um, a different variety. So that would be like, you know, using usually some more noble hops will have, have more of that impact where using like a, a little bit of citra for bittering, you, you probably won't get uh, as much of that. Um, so I, it, it's interesting that, it's becoming more important not to the problem is just making brewing a lot more confusing and scaring people away probably, but it's saying, you know, look, the, the hop variety is important. Um, the timing of when you use that variety is probably also, uh, something to look at. Um, so if, for me, it's, 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 it's exciting and an area to, to experiment with new things, but for some, I could see how it would be like, all right, too much. It's interesting to see because I suspect if you were to go take a look at like the people who we know and trust and love about hops in their IPAs, you know, so take somebody like say Vinny, right. Or, or Sean or, uh, you know, uh, with farmhouse. I mean, uh, I think you would, I would suspect that you'd find that intuitively they're doing some of this stuff. And now this is all the rest of us dummies trying to catch up and put some rules around it that we can possibly follow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the, the, the latest research just helps you understand your results in a way, um, which, which as, as a lot of brewers, I think, are kind of obsessed with, you know, everything you do has a, has a reason, right? So it's 
it's uh, it adds a little more confidence to your brew day a, a little bit when you when there's at least some science backing up to to your results. Which well, and then you throw in the complication of crop year too. Yeah, uh, you, man, there's a lot of complications. I mean, you you can the latest research I was just reading um, was on uh, dry hop extraction, right? What 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 factors play a role in dry hop extraction? Um, mm-hmm. And they, they found that, you know, higher alpha acids in a hop has a, a lower extraction rate during dry hopping. Like the alpha acids themselves are actually like blocking the extraction. Like it's almost like, uh, you know, it's just another mm. get around. And so if you, it's interesting to me because I, my first question to the author was, all right, so what about cryo hops, right? I mean, cryo hops are double the alpha. Um, so yeah. what should we, you know, are they... So they have so many more of these compounds, but are they getting into the beer? Um, and, and his response was was pretty helpful in that. They need this. They need this. That's something they hadn't really thought about. And they need to you know start studying it. But um, uh, agitation um, would help with with extraction of higher alpha hops. So that's you know shaking your carboy uh, or running it through a pump for home brew or for professional brewers or burping with CO two, which is what what we do. Um, and so there's there's just so many variables, but it's it's fun to always try to improve your beer. Absolutely, and I think that's actually a good segue because I think the the other topic that we wanted to talk about was about that dry hopping. So the thing that that Denny and I have been playing around a lot recently, uh, both from uh, what you've written up and what was, what BSG wrote up as well, was about the idea of doing uh, shorter, cooler dry hopping, mm-hmm. right? And trying uh, trying to improve flavor extraction in a way that to me seems counterintuitive, right? Yeah. I'm used to thinking, uh, you know, extraction is driven by pressure and temperature and time, right? And if you lower one of those, you lower your extraction rate and this is something different. Yeah. I mean, that's like, like I said uh, earlier we, I, at, at Sapwood, we're doing almost all of our dry hopping at 58 degrees and lower. Um, and this, this, this is after doing, um, you know, looking at some of the research as well as just well, the, the best part about writing the book was I got to travel around and, and interview some of my favorite breweries and brewers and see what they were doing. Um, and this is something they were all doing, um, whether or not they were looking at the science or not, a lot of them were, were dry hopping cooler. Um, but the, the, the papers kind of reflect that, you know, you get extraction pretty quick um, with, with dry hopping. Um, and even at cooler temperatures, you're still, this is happening pretty quick and even quicker, I think for smaller batches. So, um, home brewers, I think 24, 48 hours, um, you're probably getting pretty, pretty much full extraction of your, of your dry hops. Um, and yeah, I've been doing 48 hours at 39 degrees. That's a lot of the, um, small five. So a lot of, I'll do a lot of experiments with the brewery, at the brewery with different hop varieties or whatever. So I'll, I'll, we, Mike and I have all of our homebrew gear at, at the brewery and we utilize it all the time. So we'll take, I'll hook up a, a corny keg to our, our uh, 20 barrel tank and I'll, I'll, I'll put some, a new hop variety in that corny keg. And then I'll, I'll transfer in from the 20 barrel tank before we dry hop it, right? The beer. Um, and then I'll put that keg in the cold room. So that's about 40 degrees. Um, and so two or three days, um, that's what I'll do. And I have found, I think that, um, the colder I dry hop, it seems, and this is not something I've, this is more of ex- experiment, uh, my own experience is that it seems like the colder you dry hop, the more you kind of have to rouse, rouse that, that, um, vessel a little bit because the colder temperatures can kind of, uh, 
um, encourage the hops to drop to the bottom where they're not really extracting much when they're just sitting down there. And so once, twice, two times a day, just kind of swirl. Because if your keg's under pressure, you're, you're not worried about, you know, agitating that keg. So kind of swirling up, uh, swirling it up a little bit or, or whatever your vessel is. I think that's a little more important on the, the colder you go, but still you're getting extraction. And homebrewers, be thankful that you're only dealing with five gallons and not a 30-barrel tank. <laughs> you're afraid to mess up, that's the this flies in the face of, I think, almost, I'm going to guess everybody who is on this call right now, we all probably got taught, like when you dry hop, it's like you throw the dry hops in for two weeks at at your fermentation temperature, and that's the way to get the, the maximum hop character. And now with the science that we're seeing, the studies that are coming out, do you think it's just a matter of, you know, different compounds have different extraction rates at different temperatures and therefore by choosing to go colder, we're able to, to select for those desirable characteristics. Yeah. A lot, a lot of this stuff talks about linalool. Yeah. Uh, I think there is, there is some of that. I mean, you, first of all, you're just getting a lot of extraction quick period. And so there's mm-hmm. not, you know, if you're already kind of got what you wanted from it, there's no reason to keep it on, on those hops, but the longer you, you have it on, they, they have found that you start increasing some of what I would consider negative um, compounds. So, you know, Days three, four, five, you might be still picking up more hot polyphenols, which are kind of astringent. Um, myrcene is another one that's kind of resinous and green that can um, continue to increase with longer contact time. So I'm always trying to keep those compounds lower. I'm trying to get a, a more drinkable, um, fruit-forward beer and not so much like a green astringent one. And so, you know, if I can keep them on the hops a little less, um, that helps. But then there's also practicalities. We were talking about um, hop creep earlier. Um, if you're, if you're dry hopping cooler, these enzymes aren't as active that can cause uh, creep. So that's another advantage. Um, and you know, the longer there's other research, it shows the longer you have, um, hops on beer, you know, that can have an Im- a negative impact on head retention, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, two, three days seems to be kind of the, the, the sweet spot for, uh, for dry hopping and, and dry hopping cool. And we like anywhere from 58 to, to 40, but we're kind of in that, that mid range or towards the higher end for the most part. It's something I think I've noticed over the years where I did a lot of dry hopping at those more traditional temperatures for those periods of time. And I was always disappointed with the fact that things always felt a little more grassy than I wanted. Yeah. And yeah. if you remember, that was kind of the old, the old argument or it was like longer you dry hop the grassier it, it tastes. Right. Well, and, and of course, I used to be super lazy. Well, I still am super lazy, but uh, I used to be super lazy in the way I dry hopped where I would throw a baggie of hops into the keg and just let that bag of hops sit there until until the keg was gone. Now, of course, that was always cold, but that was obviously doing some stuff. And I, I do remember a couple of times where I had beers where at the very finish, they were very tea-like from those hop tannins. Over-extracting it in a way is, is kind of a way to think about it. Um, and, and even uh, uh, professional brewers that um, that I talk to that when they're dry hopping and they hook up uh, their tank through a pump, so they're just recirculating the, their dry hop, so they're going um, out of the tank through a pump and then right back in a the tank. They're just running a loop to try to increase that extraction. They Some of them have found that that even gets them more of like a, a over-extracted kind of harshness that, that I think you're referring to in, in with long-term contact. Right. We're, we're trying to get to a, a sweet spot here. And it seems like 
a lot of what we do uh, messes with that. There is, uh, Chris is asking, hey, you know, if you're getting most extraction that fast, is it even worth dry hopping in the keg? And I'm guessing from what we've been talking about, the answer is, well, yeah, you can dry hop in the keg, just don't leave it on the dry hops. Yeah. Transfer it over to their keg. Yeah, that's true. But if if it's really cold, I mean, I used to leave them as a home brewer in a keg for a long, long period during the, throughout the duration. It seemed to work okay, but now I'm more comfortable just, the good thing about dry hopping in a keg is it's easy to transfer to another keg um, Mm -hmm. under pressure, um, get it into a a serving keg, you'll have cleaner beer coming. So I, that's, that's what I would, I would do. I mean, it's a whole nother keg and lines to have to clean. I understand that, but well, again, this is why I'm, I'm happy that I got into homebrewing when kegs were $12 a piece. You're going to lucky one. So uh, Andy, a uh, follow-up question from Andy was, uh, could there be an effect of less volatility at lower temperatures so that you're seeing more of those oils as like more survivable characteristics? And are we worried about like what might get damaged at those higher temperatures? You know, it's, yeah, not damaged more so the higher temperatures. I think you'll you'll just see more um, escaping through your airlock because if you're dry hopping, you know, warm, you might be losing some of those um, more fruity, volatile compounds. But then you're also um, probably increasing some of the the greener, harsher ones you might not want. If you're increasing the polyphenol extraction, you're you're not only maybe losing some of the compounds out the airlock, but you're also covering up the compounds you have. Yeah, and and I think that's that's true. And the, and then the benefit to going colder when you dry hop is you're generally when you're colder, you're, you're under pressure um, because, you know, you don't want suck back from your, mm-hmm. your airlock or whatever. So you're generally, you have your beer in a keg, um, you're under pressure. And I think having head pressure while dry hopping is really important, but so you want to try to keep. So for example, at the, at the brewery where um, when we are dry hopping our beer, we have, you know, four to six um, PSI of head pressure on. So there's more pressure pushing down on the beer than there is carbonated pressure from the beer trying to come out. So like you're, you're trying to like keep, keep the compounds, the volatiles in suspension in the beer. Um, and so I think when you're dry hopping colder, you have um, head pressure on, you're still getting extraction um, and you're trying to almost like squeeze the flavor, if that makes sense to kind of. Right. You're, you're, you're trying to prevent CO2 evolution out of the beer to drag compounds out and out the airlock. Yep, and and we're we're paranoid about even having those compounds go out of the beer into the headspace of the vessel, right? right. Well, yeah, because then they're not in the beer. It is is important. It depends on how serious you want to get about all this. But for us, we're you know it's a, it's a it's a, a business too, and so we're trying to make the the, the beer best beer as possible. So we'll try to do every little trick we can. And also, I mean, from a business point of view, if if you can maximize your extraction colder and faster that's also less time that you have to have the beer in tank. And as I always remind people, it's like time in tank is money you're not making. Yeah, that is, that is true. And that's, that's something that's, you know, it's difficult for Mike and I to come to a perfect point of how long we should leave stuff. Tank. But for us, uh, we push it kind of a lot. So like, for example, uh, tomorrow we're going to do a, a canning run. So we have a mobile canning service that comes in. Of course, COVID is sort of, forced our hand to start canning all of our all of our beer which has actually been a good thing for us it turns out people really love hoppy beer in cans but this beer is it's going to be close to a month old from the brew date to when we're going to sell it to people so we're trying to build in time for dry hopping we're trying to build in time for burping our dry hops and then also having time just to sit cold afterwards to try to drop some of these 
um, hot burn um, out of the beer. And then it's, it's even going to be in cans for, um, you know, five days or so before we, we have the release. We're just sensitive to giving people super green beer. It's, 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 you can tell people not to drink it for a week, but that's just not going to happen. Right. All right. Well, and, and so, yeah, you did mention briefly that, uh, so, okay. Not only can you de- decrease hop creep and maximize the extraction and minimize the amount of time in tank. Um, but you can also decrease the hop burn, right? That all that, that green character that makes some new England IPAs feel very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. I, like I said earlier, all the stuff I've seen so far, like the, the, the papers I've read or the summaries of papers I've read have all focused on linalool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where the studies seem to have been you know, focused on. Do we see that same impact in other, with the other compounds or has that yet to be studied? It's very slowly uh, being studied. And I think um, one, one paper that, that comes to mind focuses more on temperature, during fermentation and um, um, hop thiol retention. In this particular paper, they found that at colder um, fermentation temperatures, um, the beer was retaining more of these um, thiols, which is, you know, I believe uh, this one had 40% more, uh, it was either 3MH or or 3MHA, which is the conversion of it. Um, So if you can get 40% more of a super fruity compound that has a really low threshold, and that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big deal. And so really it's just, it's, it's almost like the warmer, the, the, the beer during active fermentation is a little more aggressive and you're probably um, pushing more out of the airlock. So a a colder, slower ferment might help with some of these volatile thiols. And so um, that's actually something I plan to do in the next couple of weeks is uh, do a test batch. I have a a lager strain that I was able to get. That's a, a new one from uh, it's an old one from Germany that was been frozen forever, but it's a very low sulfur producing lager strain. And so I, I to me, that's, it's, it's a good neutral strain to use for a hoppy beer. So a hop and IPL do a 50 degree ferment loaded up with hop thiols and, and see if I can retain as much as possible and just have a super fruity beer. But again, that I might, it might not happen, but that's just using the science to kind of guide a little experimentation. Man, are you about to make a, a new England IPL? Is that yeah. what you're doing to us? And with wine grape. <laughs> I love it. No, I, I love it. I, and actually, I, I wish more brewers played with the the crossover combination of, uh, of wine grapes and beer. I think they actually, now granted, my world's all farmhouses where I do a lot of my focus and, and saisons. And the, those play wonderfully together in that space. But it'll be interesting to see how that works in the IPL. All right. Well, I think, I mean, I, I can tell, I think we've overwhelmed people with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of hop chemistry and a lot of hop, hop study stuff here. Let's give a summary, right? What, what is the practical takeaway for people here in terms of how do you do your best to push forward these flavor and aromatic compounds in your IPAs? Okay, let's see. So let's, I guess, kind of walk through uh, a brew day. Um, so I guess if you're, if you're trying to do a, a super aromatic uh, New England IPA. I think, of course, you're 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 starting with you know a, a heavy whirlpool edition, um, and so you're doing you know five to I'd say even up to ten um, ounces in a in a five gallon batch. And so this is you know probably you're 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 over five gallons, right? You're trying to yield five gallons, um, so five or ten um, ounces. Um, if you have the ability to cool that that um, whirlpool, 
um, to about 180 degrees or so before you add add your your hops. I think that's a good idea. I think it's a it's might it might be worth experimenting with splitting up. So let's say you're doing eight ounces of of your whirlpool. Uh, throw four of them in at 200. Throw your turn your chiller on, cool it to 180, and then throw in the other four. And just you're just you're layering potential there. You're just trying to layer the different amount of compounds you, you get in. And then when it comes to what which hops you're using, you might as well use some of the latest research and try to, to use some of these hops that are high in, in uh, survivable. So what hops are, what compounds are the most important to producing some of the most fruit forward beers and um, the most latest research says, you know, try using Idaho 7 or Bravo or um, Columbus or Mosaic or Simcoe or Southern Cross. Um, try using these in, I think it's best to, to, to layer them. So not focus 100% on one, but to use uh, two or three of them. Because you're really just trying to get, again, I always say complexity, but you're just trying to push as, as much of the important compounds into the beer that are going to survive. And for the and for my notes, it was about five ounces, five to six ounces in that whirlpool stage, right? I think that's a good place, yeah, to be. And it kind of depends on, you know, if, if you're doing a, a large... Um, if, if you like your New England IPAs with more of a solid bitterness, and so you're doing, you know, a, a larger 60-minute edition, you might have to back off your whirlpool just a little bit so you don't over-bitter it. But I think you're you're better off just trying to load it up on the back end um, and, and not doing much at all for the, on the front end. Well, but uh, I will also say, I think for people like me who are like, I mean, look, I've been doing this for 20-plus years, so I, I still have my brain is still attuned to a West Coast IPA. I think there are still a lot of things that you can take out of this and put into the West Coast mantra as well, just dealing with different downstream impacts. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all very similar in nature, right? I mean, how you're, how you're treating, how, uh, treating the process and, and everything. We got the whirlpool. We go to ferment. So ferment, I'd say all the same rules apply. I mean, you, you do everything you can to have a healthy, good fermentation. Um, any, it's just like you, people say, you know, lagers are hard to make because the, the, you know, if it's not a clean ferment or any, any flaw is going to show, right? Um, I kind of look at, use that same logic in, in a hazy IPA, like any flaw is going to compete with the hop flavor I'm after. Um, and so, you know, a good clean ferment, um, good healthy yeast pitch, um, I'm, we're generally, you know, we use a, uh, Conan strain or London ale three um, strain. They're all a little different. Um, they all, the different yeast labs all have like a London nail three strain, but they, if you are if very critical, you can kind of tell a difference between them, but um, usually we're fermenting those around 66 to start for a day or two. Um, then bumping to, to 68 and getting to 70 pretty quick. Um, three, four days in um, and then let, let fermentation finish out. And then we, um, try to crash out the yeast, which I know is is um, kind of uh, it's easier for commercial brewers with a with a conical. But um, crashing that that beer down to fifty eight after fermentation for that soft crash, trying to maintain as much pressure on the beer so you're not uptaking any oxygen, um, and then um, starting your dry hops cool like we talked about. So two three days at, at fifty eight degrees or lower is is where we're at right now. Um, agitating or burping the we, we burp it through the cone once a day to, to agitate those hops, but a uh, home brewer, you can just pick up your fermenter and like kind of slightly swirl it or something. Um, just because you want to get those hops in the suspension to, to extract. 
Um, I was going to say instructions unclear. I just shook my carboy like a like a cocktail shaker. Yeah, you definitely don't want to get any any oxygen into that thing. You just kind of want to agitate it a little bit, and it doesn't take much. Um, if you have like clear fermenter, if you've ever just picked it up and moved it, you you can see how the hops are just kind of like rouse and get all over the place, and so that's that's really all you're after. And then you said. You've got those survivable characteristics that you want to look for. I think people need to start paying attention to beyond just the hydro, hydrocarbons and the terpenes they need to, or monoterpenes. They need to go also look at the thiols and, and if, if they feel brave, dig further. But I think right. let's start there. So guys, don't forget, get your questions into the chat. And I'm going to, I, I think that's a good summary of, of the, the current hop research. And of course, you can always go to scottjanish.com and we'll have a link so people can go there. You can find out more stuff. And also you can go buy Scott's, the new IPA, right? Which, which I, I've, uh, I'm about halfway through. And I have to admit, like, sometimes the hop chemistry is just enough to make me kind of have to stop and go, oh, I'm going to have to take a break so I can. <laughs> Trust me. I was there when I was trying to write it. <laughs> So hey, um, here's a question for you. So uh, is uh, first word hopping a myth? I mean, it's it's definitely uh, you know worth doing. I think, um, like I said earlier, we we actually add um, hops to the the mash, and that's more of to complex some of those problematic metals. Um, the one paper that I referenced that 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 got us doing that also was first word hopping. Um, sort of layering the alpha acids in and then layering the impact of complexing problematic metals. Um, so first word hopping, I think, could have a positive impact on beer stability. Um, it's going to give you a little bit of bitterness, but not as much, you know, as like a, um, it's like a huge 60-minute addition. Um, you're probably losing most of the volatiles from it for the most part, but um, for us, we, we just don't do it because we, we are trying to um, cool our whirlpool before adding our hops, and we just can't have any hops in our, our kettle. Um, or like we discussed earlier, we'll just clog up our heat exchanger. But um, as the home brewer, I don't, I don't see a, a downside to a very small um, mash hop and a real small uh, first work, just kind of um, for, for the stability purpose. But um, okay, the reason I was asking is because uh, Gordon Strong in his book uh, Brew Better Beer. He strongly advocates for uh, first word hopping is uh, because he says that the steeping of the the hops from first word hopping actually preserves the uh, the volatile compounds through the boil. And I was wondering if you know you had experimented with that. I, yeah, I, could, I uh, could, uh, can see the logic in that. I, I don't know if he if he pointed to a reference. I'd have to go back and, and look closer. Um, but I think you know if you you get it, it, you get some of these volatile, a lot of these compounds are just really volatile and you get them into uh, the beer with a, you know, as it's coming up the temperature, I, um, I would be inclined to think that during the course of a heavy boil, you're probably pushing some of those out. Um, but he might be pointing to uh, a paper or reference that I'm unfamiliar with there. He was not. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, I mean, the problem is at least amongst the older generation homebrewers like myself and, and Gordon, a lot of people pushed uh, first word hopping based on, uh, I think, a couple of German studies that were there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the big thing, and people always tried to come up with explanations for why it was supposed to have an impact. Um, I don't know if anybody's actually quantified an actual scientific reason behind it, right? If, it's, if you're doing it and you love the, the outcome and you love your beers, there's no reason to, to not do it. And 
And like mm-hmm. I said, if it if there's a chance it helps uh, with the stability of that beer, then why not? The, the the first rule I always tell people about brewing is that there are about 20,000 ways to make a beer. If you find a way that makes beer that you enjoy, keep doing it. That's the whole point. That's why you homebrew, right? You're brewing for yourself. So you might as well brew to your palate and, and um, to your process. So I, I 100% agree. We got a couple questions here. Nico, you asked a little while back. Uh, he says, hey, Scott, I just bought the book, so I'm ready to crack it open. Are there particular recommendations on ideal water treatment for hazies? Chloride versus gypsum, uh, gypsum one to one, hundred parts per million. Today, what do you recommend? Um, I think water treatment is important. Um, it, I think that you can get a little too serious or too too caught up in it as well. Um, we have pretty neutral water uh, at the brewery, and so um, we have a carbon filter that we just get um, you know any chlorine or chloramine out, um, and then we are adding only gypsum and calcium chloride um and for us it's about um i think we're usually about 150 parts per million chloride and 100 125 um gypsum for the sulfate kind of our general that's just kind of the, the sweet spot we found has worked pretty good on a range of beers um you you might want to consider adding slightly more um minerals for lower ABV beers just because you get so many minerals into a beer from grain. And so if you're doing a a double IPA, you're just, you know, by having that much more grain in there, you're going to have a lot higher mineral content. So increasing it a little bit in lower ABV beers is something you could uh, play with and see if you like. Um, But for us, we're usually, yeah, 150 parts um, um, chloride and then 100, 125 for, for gypsum and um, sometimes we'll throw Epsom salt into the, the whirlpool, but that's more of a, um, we think it has a, a positive taste impact and, and, uh, really no, no science to, to prove that's a good thing or bad thing, but it's something we do sometimes. Yeah. I can't do that here. My magnesium is already too high. Um, so our uh, next question, uh, from Craig, he asked, uh, so with all the research into the use of hops, are we going to see some new products and processes for commercial and homebrewers that help dial in the desired results. I think that question is, is primarily like, help, how do I understand what to do? Um, yeah, I mean, you're already seeing like new, new products. There's, you know, cryo is a great example of that. They're trying to get as much of the vegetative, vegetal material out of the hops and as much of the, uh, um, of the oils um, that, that have a good impact into the beer. Um, in terms of like even the survivable research um, that we were talking about, um, Yakima Chief is working on putting together blends of cryo that will actually, you know, they they know which compounds have a, the biggest impact on, on, on the beer. And so they're trying to combine, you know, four or five or whatever, however many um, hop varieties that they think have the most of these compounds and then making a cryo blend of that. Um, so they're, they're basically using the research to create a, a new product that they think would might be a really good um, hot side or even uh, early dry hop addition hop. So they're always trying to uh, create new new hop products, and so it's it's fun to to try to get um, try to get my hands on them and try them. I think there's a new one too, as Lupo Max or something is a is a new uh, hop product. I might be yeah. I think that, that is that Bar- uh, that might be Barth or Hopsteiner. I don't think that's a YCH product. Yep, and I, I haven't used it yet, but that's that's another uh, another new one. So they're, they're all, they're, I think um, the cool thing is, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to produce stuff that brewers want, right? And so um, what brewers want are, you know, pretty intense 
flavors and that's what consumers want now too. Um, and so whatever they can do to sort of tweak their, their, um, their product to, to help brewers achieve it a little easier. I think they're, they're working on. Yeah. See, and I'm, I'm the weirdo. I, I like the, uh, the American noble, uh, the, AKA the flip side of the cryo for all my saisons. And whatnot. <laughs> that's right. That's the great thing about brewing, whatever you want. All right. Uh, our next question. Um, can you talk about the influence of finished beer pH on hop expression, especially considering heavy dry hop loads tend to raise the pH? And do you have a certain knockout pH that you look at to target for maximizing expression? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've looked at this a little bit and I, I really need to spend more time on it. When you like, for example, uh, one of our double IPAs where we're dry hopping at about uh, 4.4 pounds per barrel. Um, which is a fairly big um, dry hop um, addition, and it's raising that pH quite a bit. Um, so it's getting you know four five, close to four six. Um, the research shows that the higher the pH of the finished beer, the more uh, the more bitter it can actually taste. Uh, the perceived bitterness can go up a little bit. And so I, I did one little experiment where I took uh, you know a double IPA. That was dry hop to you know four point four pounds a barrel, and then a uh, lower alcohol or uh, yeah lower alcohol hazy IPA that was you know had a little lower pH because it had a lower uh, dry hop addition, um, and I dosed each of those with lactic acid um, just to bring them down to about four point two pH, um, and then um, and taste them just to see kind of what what happened. And it's, it's difficult because just you know, adding uh, lactic acid, you kind of have to stir the, the beer a little bit to mix it. And you're, you're probably losing a little bit of hop volatiles. It's not a perfect, uh, a perfect experiment, but it was interesting to me that I actually liked the double IPA at the lower pH. Um, to me, it was a little uh, easier to, to drink. It, I sort of like encouraged a quicker uh, second sip, if that makes sense. It was just a little smoother. Um, I didn't care for it so much in the, in the low alcohol beer. I thought it just kind of made it a little, um, you know, flatter probably isn't the best term. Um, cause I'm not talking about um, the CO2, but just, uh, it just, it wasn't, uh, it's, it's flavorful. Um, so I don't know where the, the perfect sweet spot is. I, I do know that we, we try to get our mash pH at least pretty low in a lot of these, especially the, the double IPAs. So like five, two or so just to try to set the stage for a slightly lower finished P, uh, final pH. Um, but there's, there's a lot more to experiment with here. Cause we, I, you know, here I use lactic acid, but there's, there's other acids you could use to, to, to dose your beer post uh, fermentation that, that might be a little more enjoyable, you know, mm-hmm. um, acid, for example. Um, so it's, it's more, more to play with, but I, you know, right now we're not dosing. We're only doing this stuff at the brewery for experimental purposes, but we're, we haven't um, dosed a, a beer, um, you know, a big batch yet, but it's, it's something where uh, I think could, could be, I, I'm curious what a lot of other brewers are, are doing if, if they care at all about um, their finished pH. Um, but it was, it was interesting to me that it was pretty obvious that it had a, a huge flavor in, or a, a impact on the final beer when we just dosed it in one glass. So something to keep looking at. Sorry, I don't have a perfect answer for you there other than that it's, there is probably something to it. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I mean, at this point in time with all this stuff, we all know there's no perfect answers, only more questions. Uh, I, I will tell people if you go back and you listen to the episode that I did with uh, Julian from Beachwood out here in Long Beach, he talked about doing post-boil acidification for his IPAs 
purposely to target a lower finished pH because he felt that it did a better hop expression on a better hop bitterness uh, for his uh, for his beers than uh, a higher pH. We got a couple of other questions here. Um, just to follow on uh, on the the pH uh, bit, is there any other way to lower the pH of a finished beer? And you mentioned using citric acid, and I imagine you could use, in addition to lactic, you could use like phosphoric and other things, right? Yeah, uh, phosphoric, uh, lactic, um, malic, citric acid. They're all different acids you can use. Yeah, um, don't don't use hydrochloric or sulfuric. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But yeah, other than that, you know, I, you can always just try to shoot for different levels in, in your mash or, or, or whatever, too, to try to encourage the final pH. But there's, I don't know if there's a, if, if he's referring to like a different method to, to lower a post firm that's not dosing acid. I, I don't know of any way because, I mean, I know, I know the ferment's naturally going to lower the, the pH anyway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the only way that we have available that I can think of immediately, and of course, somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong here. Uh, is, yeah, you add acid. Jump in real quick there and just say, the only thing that comes to mind real quick is that it seems that the they don't know what compounds are actually raising the pH in the in the dry hop beers, um, but it does seem to be tied to the vegetal material itself mm-hmm. in the hop. Um, so if you're trying to n- not have as much of a pH increase, you could potentially use cryo, which has less vegetal material, and you might get uh, slightly less of a pH raised from heavy dry hopping, but that's um, just kind of a theory right now for, of mine. Hey, I'll, I'll take theories right now. It's better than my guess. All right. Uh, we had a question come in from uh, Jason Naylor uh, talking about like all this sort of focus that we're trying to do down on these various oils and compounds. Is there a danger of over-refinement and losing some of the complexity of the other organic compounds in hops by trying to extract only the quote-unquote desirables? And then also, do these research results have any applications to older pre-hop methods, e.g. Brewit? Um, I mean, that's a good question. If you're, if you're trying to target one final outcome, you can kind of neglect, you know, some of the other natural process that happens. Um, that immediately reminds me of um, an old experiment I did, an article where I was um, – my, my idea was I didn't want any ester uh, production at all in a beer. Um, I just wanted the hops themselves to, to do all the work and shine. And so I did a, um, the, the, the research at the time was saying that if you did a, a ferment under pressure, you would have, you know, that could reduce the, um, the esters in, in, during fermentation. So I did one under, I think like 10 PSI head pressure the whole time and treated the beer like normal afterwards. So dry hopping, like I would in a normal beer. And it just wasn't nearly as good. Like the beer needed those natural uh, esters to just play a role in, 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 in the overall, because uh, there's so many compounds, it's so complex. Um, so there seemed to be a place for esters, even in hoppy beers. Um, so I see what he's saying. If you're just trying to isolate certain compounds, you, you might be distracting from um, something else. But in terms of the survivable, um, you're still adding multiple hops. You're still doing it, um, you know, in the presence of some heat. And I think you're, you're, you're generating enough of these compounds going in that I, I, I don't think it's, it'd be hard to really do a lot of isolation. You're still sort of poking and hoping at this point, you know, that the research says this might happen, but um, it's not like you're, you're dialing it in exactly. It's well, it'll like, be interesting to see what happens with that uh, cryo survivable blend. Yeah. I, I used it once. Um, it, it was in a beer, though, that I also had uh, mango in, 
And so it wasn't a very great uh, expression of that of that on its own. Since it was, you know, how fruity was the beer? I don't know. It already had fruit in it. So <laughs> I need to work with some more. And I think they even encourage um, that people try dry hopping with that blend. So it'll be it'll be interesting it, if and when that um, hits the market. Other questions that we got here. Uh, Josh is asking, I may have understood that my takeaway was that the first wort hop variety didn't matter. I was taught that the flavor will come through, but uh, be a bit more rounded. I may have misunderstood. What do you, th- uh, what do you guys say? Uh, in terms of like being more rounded, I, I guess I'm not sure if that, that's the case or not. Um, maybe if you, you have experience with that, maybe that, that's, that's true. Um, the variety probably, it, it doesn't have a huge impact because I imagine the, the addition would be pretty small because you, you don't want to have too much mm-hmm. bitterness from it. Um, but there, you know, there is some hop, if you're using uh, some of these more noble varieties, you could risk getting more of that kind of woody noble uh, kettle um, mm-hmm. flavor in the beer if you're, if you're using them early. Um, so I, I, you could consider using, um, I think you're probably safe to say if you're going to be using the hop in the whirlpool, it's probably a, a decent one to use as a small charge as a, as a first word. Okay. Uh, and let's see, Chris has asked, uh, is there a big difference in hopulization, assuming the same occasional agitation, by using a hot bag in the keg versus loose hops? And he says, I'm lazy and I don't like clean any more than I have to. And Chris, I feel <laughs> you, buddy. I hear him. Um, you know, there. I think Brewlosophy actually even tested this recently, but there is uh, there was one paper that I point to in the book that showed, I think it was close to 50% um, less extraction when they confine the dry hops in a, um, a bag. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, it's not a great example, but if you just have like a giant bedspread and you put it in your dryer and the outside gets dry and the middle is still wet, um, it's kind of like that. Like you have this big, tight pack of hops in, the, in a bag and then the outside is wet, but if you peel it apart, like you might find like whole pellets or something kind of still intact inside. Um, um, we, we find that if we try to, to use, um, you know, the stainless steel um, screw cap things that you can just toss hops in and then um, it's like a 300 micron screen and then you, you just uh, screw the cap on. If we overfill those and then dry hop a beer and then when it comes to cleaning the keg, you take it apart, we'll find full pellets still in there, which means, you know, those clearly didn't extract. Um, so the, the, the research says, yeah, you get less um, – extraction utilization if you're if you're using a bag and they're kind of contained so if you can have them in there loose that's that's probably better but that can be harder to get beer out of a keg um there's ways to deal with it you can put a screen around your dip tube which is what i used to do uh there's a device now i think that a lot of brewers homebrewers use that kind of pulls from the top it's like a float um and then um so if you don't want, if, if you're concerned about utilization, um, that you just want to use bags and maybe use two bags and, um, you know, have them less compact. Um, that could be something you could try or, um, or just use slightly more hops. If, if you're getting less utilization, maybe just kind of increase it a little bit, but maybe two or three mesh bags. So they're not as full. And so they're, they're kind of floating a little bit more might be something to, to try. And also to throw in another tip from the previously aforementioned uh, Julian, he said that when he does his uh, big mesh dry hop bags, he also mixes in whole hops 
to provide some filtration media just to avoid that completely dry center hot pellet thing. But that may or may not be practical for everybody. It may not be necessary on our level. Anybody, anybody got another uh, a last question? Oh, yeah. So Josh is asking, do you want the hot bags to float or would it be better to have them sink? It's a good question because I, I used to always weight them um, and so they would sink as a home brewer. Um, but now I've seen such a, a positive if you get your hops to be in suspension, it seems like that's better for extraction. So if, if there's, I'm not sure I have a great answer because if they're stuck to the bottom of the keg, they're probably still extracting, but not as well as if they were floating. Um, but if they're just floating at the very top, that's probably not great either. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's difficult to say. I think if, if you have the ability to toss them in loose, I think that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. And you can get those little screens for the dip tubes and yeah, uh, that, that will help. All right. Well, uh, I would think that maybe uh, just as common sense, if you pre-wet the the pellets before, or just as you're entering them, uh, you're going to you know uh, get them to dissolve more and uh, get more into your solution, even inside a loose bag. How would you uh, pre-wet them? Just spray them with wort. Yeah, it's it's. I think uh, I'm always so afraid of, of of oxygen intake whenever I'm adding dry hops. Um, and so I'm always, uh, that's why I'm such a big fan of, of doing it in another vessel where you can transfer in under pressure. You can purge, purge the hops, purge the vessel that the, that the beer is going into. Um, just, uh, you know, I think oxygen is a, is a huge concern for, um, homers. I know it is cause I have a hard time at the brewery when I'm doing five gallon batches, um, having a comparative beer to the big scale. Um, when you open up a, uh, a sailor, you're, you're doing it in a bucket, for example, um, and you're adding the hops, you just kind of toss them in from the top. You're, you open that up and you're essentially exposing five gallons of beer um, to more oxygen than we would on a, a 600 gallon batch of beer. Um, so we have a four little inch hot port um, that we just toss them in. And so the, the oxygen that gets in is being diluted with so much more beer. Whereas a home brewer, you're, you have more oxygen in for that smaller amount. of, And so I think the more you can um, reduce the oxygen intake on hoppy, hazy beers in particular, the better. And so, um, you know, spring, getting the, I guess you wouldn't necessarily be adding more oxygen by pre-wetting them. Um, but again, it's, it just made, more made me think about the process of adding that bag to, to beer, especially uh, beer that's already been fermented. I think the biggest takeaway about hazy IPAs, at least at the homebrew levels, it's finally driven people to understand that, uh, yeah, cold side oxidation can happen and happen rapidly. And if you're doing things like a hazy IPA or even some of your lagers, you need to, you need to do your best to pay attention. One more little thing on that is, is and I would even point to, to Brulosophy's experiments on this, um, it seems that adding even like 0.2 grams of metabisulfite while you're dry hopping your beers might be a good thing to try to uh, keep your uh, oxygen levels down. Um, just, just something to try. And, and you know, I'm shocked by just seeing the color difference in some of their experiments on that. Um, and it's just not going to have a huge flavor impact, and it's you know, not an expensive uh, thing to do if you're going to be spending all that time on that beer. You might as well. How much did you say? Um, I, I think it's about 0.2 grams is probably plenty for a, a five-gallon batch. Yeah. It's, it's basically a pinch. So, uh, Scott, before we let you go back about your Sunday, 
Are there any other comments that you want to just lay out there for general hop knowledge that people should know why they should go buy your book other than the fact that it's a bunch of good hop knowledge? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're having trouble sleeping, I recommend buying my book. It, it is more of a reference book, that's for sure. It's more of a, you know, you have a question about something, maybe you could uh, look at it quick and see um, see what the science says on it. Um, and I I, I, I had a, a Brian Roth, uh, who does a podcast for Good Beer Hunting, and um, he's a beer writer I respect a lot. He did a lot of the editing for it. And after reading like two or three chapters, he's like, dude, you got to start summarizing these at the end. Like, I'm reading this stuff. I don't know what, you know, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. But then at the end, I'm, I'm kind of just left with nothing. So I took his advice and tried to do my best to have like a, you know, five or six bullet points at the end of each chapter to just, maybe you can just go back and look at those when you, when you have a question or a, a, a thought about tweaking your process or using a certain ingredient. But uh, so in other words, the right thing to do is buy the book and then just skip to the end of the chapters, read that and then keep going. <laughs> you, yeah, you get through the whole book in an hour yeah there we go <laughs> but otherwise no, I'm, I'm just uh thank you for uh for inviting me uh to do this and hopefully uh um it was helpful and not not too confusing for people thank you so much for for joining us thank you so much for uh dropping the the the, the hop knowledge that you've put into your brain pan and trying to get it out in a way that the rest of us can follow on i do hope uh, uh <laughs> yeah Chris is like, hey, it was awesome. Can you send some sapwood beers to the club? Uh, (laughs) um, That might violate some federal laws. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this session of practical hop takeaways and new ways to think about your hops and how to get more of that hop goodness in your beer. So let us know, what have you been doing? What are you trying to make? And what exactly do you think you're going to do with all this new... all this new confusing world of hops. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is, well, we're still determined, but I think we actually finally locked it down now after a couple months. Uh, But we are going to find a charity that's going to support both brewery workers and restaurant workers because of, well, all the chaos going on. Now, until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.